1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of The Best of Fight Back from the week that was. On Monday, we were talking about the Oscars. During the show Sunday evening, the elder acting icons were shown a lot of respect, including Martin Scorsese, who was acknowledged by Parasite director Bong Joon Ho through his translator.
2: Thank you so much. When I was young and studying cinema, there was a saying that I carved deep into my heart, which is, the most personal is the most creative.
3: That quote was from uh, our great Martin Scorsese. So, <laughs>
1: But were older actors properly represented in Oscar-winning films? Libby Snymer asked this question of our Zoomer squad. Marissa Lennox, chief policy officer at CARP. David Kravitz, vice president of Zoomer Media. And Peter Muggridge, senior editor of Zoomer Magazine.
4: One of the, the themes of uh, the, the Everything Zoomer articles was, was nostalgia and how this, this Oscars you know, some of the movies that were represented, The Irishman, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Ford vs. Ferrari, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. These are all sort of movies that reminisce from a, a, a time gone by. So if it, it wasn't necessarily the actors who won, although Brad Pitt won Best Supporting Actor 56, and uh, Elton John won Best Original Song, and he's 72. But it was the themes of the movies that that certainly spoke to an older audience.
2: Is that significant, a change in the culture, David?
5: I don't know how significant because... every couple of years we're told there's a whole new trend sweeping the world, but it's true that the, there, this was more about storyline and there was a lot of uh, nostalgia in the uh, in the themes. And there was a tremendous representation on stage. I mean, Jane Fonda, was she 80 years old, announced his best picture. Um, so there were a lot of people who were Zoom. By the way, the Korean director is 50 years old. He's yeah. a Zoomer. He's not Twenty six. He's, I think, fifty or forty. Yeah, he's an
2: overnight sensation after probably 25 uh, twenty five years of yeah. toiling
5: in the in the weeds, and now suddenly he's, he's been. Just as a on a personal, the the most deliciously ironic thing for me was um, the choice of Billie Eilish to sing yesterday when they did the in memoriam of all the people who had passed away because three or four weeks ago, she got into trouble. She's 17. She got into trouble on Jimmy Kimmel's show for confessing. She never heard of Van Halen or Huey Lewis and the news <laughs> or run DMZ. Didn't know what cabbage patch, dolls were uh, so here she is singing it was, it was fine her performance was great it was all very tasteful but to me watching this this was like the uh, supreme irony of oh, yeah. who you picked to sing in memoriam to all these great stars right. someone who who doesn't know of life before uh, 2001
1: but when i think about hollywood greats I don't think about Billie Eilish and uh, Justin Bieber. I mean, I, I think Thank about goodness. no, right? I right. mean, I I think about Jane Fonda, Judy I, Garland. I, G, yeah, yeah, Judy. Sure. I mean, even Brad Pitt, who's a phenomenal act Leonardo DiCaprio. Did is you 45, say Brad now Pitt's he's 56? He's
2: fifty-six? That's what f- that's,
4: what, that's f- what Zoomer said. Yeah.
2: Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know,
4: Time they're getting that, He looks pretty good. First, well,
2: and, he looks pretty good for any age.
4: That was his it's not first an age. Oscar thing. Last night. Okay. So,
2: when yeah. I think about
1: cinematic skill, I don't think that it's a, a function of youth. Actually,
2: I think it's a function of grace and age, <laughs> if anything. I did find interesting this tribute and acknowledgement of elders that right. seemed to be one of the threads. We saw Lauren, Laura Dern you know, paying tribute to her parents, Diane Ladd and and Bruce Dern. And I'm wondering, does that signal any kind of change in the culture? Because actually, when when Zoomers, when boomers were young, you know, we denigrated the older generation, at least for a while. Does that signify anything significant?
5: I think it has featured at the Oscars sometimes in the past. And the Oscars, it's interesting that with all the... um, Talk about representation and diversity, especially racial and by gender. The Oscars have always been fairly—I um, don't want to say ahead of the curve, but up to date on age. On AB, you know, we had Art Carney winning an Oscar in his uh, 60s or 70s, first time ever. I remember that because of uh, at the time it was quite a sensation. They—they they don't seem to. Um, restrict the field by age as much as maybe by other variables and to your point libby this year's the topics were all about nostalgia and so on many of the presenters were older there's always been a lifetime achievement award uh, at the oscars so it seems that it's built into the uh, institution a little bit to take into account you know a life's work and the contributions Mm. of some of the older members of the profession
4: yeah and I, I guess too the the younger actors are doing superhero movies, right? So none of those movies are ever going to get any Oscar credit at all. So it, it's gonna. I, I think in future of the Oscars, if if we're all going to have superhero movies dominating, that that the movies that you know, that present a little bit of thought are going to be dominated by older actors, I think.
1: That was Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, our Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. When our strategy panelists got together this past Tuesday, there was a lot happening in all levels of government. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was in Africa drumming up support for a temporary seat on the UN Security Council. There were developments in both the federal conservative and Ontario liberal leadership races. On the municipal front, the city's outside workers could be on strike or locked out as early as February 27th. John Capobianco is Senior Vice President and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Charles Byrd is managing principal of Earnscliffe Strategy Group in Toronto. And Adrian Batra is editor-in-chief of the Toronto Sun. They first discussed the PM in Africa with Raptors president Masai Ujiri and an assertion by former conservative cabinet minister John Baird that Trudeau's blackface scandal was sure to come up during this visit.
6: I think a vast majority of Canadians understand that, you know, we need to be good global citizens. We need to be good partners around the world and look for economic opportunities. But are these the right ones? And that's the question mark. I just think that this is um, yet another attempt by Justin Trudeau to leave the country. He's he's far more appreciated and loved outside of the Canadian borders. Um, and, and that's often what politicians do when they feel a little bit of pressure at home.
2: Charles Bird does taking a trip with Masai Ujiri, the Raptors hero and the hero son of Africa. Is that part of the plan?
3: Well, I mean... And Sayajiri is uh, a noted humanitarian who has done a lot of development work in Africa. He's uh, a symbol of a lot of the great things about uh, Toronto, about Canada. And I think it makes perfect sense for him to accompany the Prime Minister, just given what a a symbol of hope and pride he is to uh, Africans and especially African young people. As for... John Barrett. It sounds like a gratuitous shot from somebody who may or may not be running for the conservative leadership of Canada. My my sense is that he won't run. I think there's just too much there that uh, would prove problematic as my friend john might say
2: i'll give john a chance to weigh in on the trudeau trip i mean you know obviously the the main criticism is uh i'm trying to think of a more diplomatic word than sucking up
7: <laughs> to no, that's a dictators and human one. rights abusers <laughs> to get this seat well i think it was hugely risked it was a huge risk for the prime minister to do this and i think that what john Baird was mentioning with respect to blackface um you know is not to be taken lightly in the sense that you know it is the First trip that he made internationally since he's become prime minister, since the issue of, of the controversy that 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 as um, that had caused him so much problem. Um, but again, I think that he's trying to do this in a sense that to, to to get some deflection away. Having Masai there was probably the smartest thing he can do to sort of make sure that that's the focus and not so much that or some of the negativity that that comes with the trip.
2: We're basically out of time. Let's uh, go around the table, just starting with John.
7: Well, I'm looking forward to the legislature coming back into um, into play uh, after the. Family Day weekend. I think it's going to be interesting to see how the government plays out on the school issue, but also, more importantly, the economy. I think that uh, Minister Rod Phillips and and, uh, uh, and the work that he's been doing on, on the budget and on the economic statements has been solid, and I think that we're going to see a lot more of that happening over the course of the next number of months.
6: Adrian? I think uh, one of the Topics on our panel we were going to touch on was the city yes, potential strike at the city. So there. I'm going to, I'm going to touch on that for my 20 seconds. You know, I think that if there is going to be a strike, it's outside workers. It should happen now. So we do not want to have a repeat of what happened in 2009. Undid David Miller. And if there's anything, um, your listeners should remember that jobs for life is still very much a real issue at city hall. The, the unions are continuing to, to hang on to that in terms of their job security and it, Puts uh, uh, challenge and pressure on property taxpayers unduly. Charles.
3: New Hampshire. New Hampshire, New Hampshire, New Hampshire, just like last week was Iowa, Iowa, Iowa. I mean, Democrats in in that state are on the verge of uh, choosing Bernie Sanders as the first place finisher. It The the race for the Democratic nomination is becoming just incredibly fascinating, um, more so than we've seen for a long time, notwithstanding the battle between uh, Obama and Hillary back in 2008. You know, will Joe Biden survive to South Carolina? You know, because Bernie's, if Bernie wins New Hampshire, He's going to win Nevada as well. And uh, it starts to get very interesting. And in the wings, Michael Bloomberg. just mm-hmm. in, and, and
7: at least he'll get the results tonight.
1: <laughs>
0: we hope. We'll, we'll, see. See. we'll, we'll see. see.
7: We'll see. We the hope.
3: Ontario Liberal Party did a much better job than Democrats in, Owa- in o- oh. o- Iowa.
1: Charles Byrd is managing principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Adrian Batra is editor-in-chief of the Toronto Sun. And John Capobianco is senior vice president and senior partner at Fleischman-Hillard High Road in conversation with Libby Snymer this past Tuesday on New Hampshire Primary Day. A winner was declared at the end of the day, progressive Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. More teacher strikes are planned in Ontario for this coming week, culminating with a province-wide walkout by all teachers at all publicly funded schools on Friday the 21st. This past week, there was a province-wide one-day strike by public elementary teachers, plus another strike the following day, which affected some boards, including the Toronto District School Board. Classes were cancelled for high school students in nine districts this past Thursday as members of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation took part in a one-day rotating walkout. Also on Thursday, teachers in the French language system staged a province-wide strike. So how much more of this should parents and grandparents expect, and what will it take to get back to negotiations and consensus? This past Monday, Libby Snymer was joined by Harvey Bischoff, president of Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation.
8: We're in the hands of the mediator. Um, we have an expert and experienced mediator who is uh, monitoring the situation. I guess when she thinks that there's a prospect for productive talks, uh, she'll invite us back to the table and we'll certainly uh, take that invitation positively, but so far she hasn't made that invitation.
2: You or, and other union people have said that there's no danger to the school year so far, but we're seeing a situation where for some kids it's it's been two days a week plus PD days. Uh, at what point will it become a danger to the school year? Yeah, so, I mean,
8: you couldn't really include PDA day, PD days, which happen, you know, regularly several times throughout the school year as part of uh, as part of any, uh, any consideration in terms of risk to the school year. For my union, our action has touched students uh, once a month. Um, they've been rotating strikes involving a quarter of the province each week. So once per month, uh, students are affected by OSSTF action. And when you spread that out over the course of the year, I mean, certainly we've had years where students have lost more. Uh, days to, you know, inclement weather than, than to our action. and I'm, In saying that, I don't minimize that it has an impact on students and families. We're aware of that. Um, certainly, uh, as a parent myself, I get that. I'm just saying that our action compared to the cuts this government is imposing uh, is, uh, you know, minor compared to the damage that the Ford government will do.
2: The unions say this is not about money. If that is the case, why wouldn't you come out and say, okay, then we will take the 1% that the Ford government says they won't budge on if you budge on the issues of class size and online learning?
8: Well, these are exactly matters to be dealt with at the bargaining table. That's that's uh, that's where the, that discussion should happen. Um, and at the same time, I haven't heard the government say, you know, we're going to move on their erosion of, uh, of, uh, you know, the number of education workers and teachers in the system, their, uh, their, uh, implementation of a mandatory Alabama-style e-learning program. I haven't heard them come out and say that. And in fact, we've made the offer repeatedly to postpone our strike action completely if they will simply commit to last year's education worker and teacher staffing ratios um, and leave everything else to the bargaining table, and they have refused out of hand.
2: You're also going to court to contest that 1% cap on wages, correct? Correct.
8: That's right. We have uh, good reason to believe that it's unconstitutional. My members have the right to negotiations under the charter. Um, we've seen uh, governments violate the charter in the past, and and uh, have the courts overturn their uh, decisions. And we believe that we're uh, almost certainly in the same boat this time.
2: But doesn't that undermine the claim that it's not a, not about money?
8: No, no, it doesn't. In fact, what it says is that these are matters that should be bargained, and the government shouldn't restrict the creativity that's meant to happen at the bargaining table by uh, implementing legislation that's a violation of my members' charter rights. So, you know, us moving to, let's say, accepting 1% uh, is hardly a move when the government has legislated it in advance. And so, you know, it, it, that reinforces my point. They've restricted the latitude for negotiations, they, they, you know, they built this little box for themselves through their own uh, public statements, their own unilateral uh, moves and through legislation. And then they claim that there's, you know, or complain that there's no room to maneuver. But they built this little box themselves that created these problems.
2: So what will it take to break the logjam?
8: Well, I think it'll take a government finally listening to the very parents that they consulted. So they they consulted tens of thousands of parents. Biggest con- consultation ever, they claim. Um, they tried to keep that consultation secret. It was leaked. Uh, it showed us that overwhelmingly parents reject bigger class sizes, mandatory e-learning, loss of education workers in the system who support uh, high-needs and at-risk students. Um, And so there's a path to a deal, but it runs right through what parents have already told them and which they have so far ignored.
1: Harvey Bishop, president of Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. He spoke with Libby Snymer this past Monday. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. On Thursday, Education Minister Stephen Lecce joined Libby with his perspective on the ongoing teacher strikes. We heard a slightly more conciliatory tone from the Education Minister than in the past. Could he be ready to make some concessions? See what you think.
9: Overall, what I'm hearing from the population is they want the government to be reasonable, um, And they also want the government to stand strong in the context of fighting for more investments in schools over heightened compensation increases. And I'm going to work very hard, and I'm calling on the union today, as I did yesterday, to invoke private mediation, a sensible option that can help us get a defensible outcome, a deal that I think all of us want and the kids deserve.
2: Why would you not say, given that the the public seems to be against Those e-learning classes and also uh, the increase in class size, even though you have come off those a bit. uh, Why wouldn't you say we stand for the 1%? We're not going above that, but we will back down on those two other issues. Would you say that?
9: Well, I've always indicated, actually, on classroom sizes, which is the second issue you, I think, you're you're noting. Uh, I've actually always said that we want to retain low classroom sizes, and I stand ready to innovative ways to achieve that. I am fully committed to keeping classroom sizes low in this province. In fact, under our plan, we have the lowest classroom sizes in Canada by far when it comes to the earliest years in elementary. We're maintaining all day kindergarten, um, and these are important data points. But when it comes to any future Changes. I am fully committed, Libby, to finding a pathway where those numbers remain low. But in a choice, in a, in a, in a world of finite resources, it's a matter. Of, you know, budgets are philosophical documents of where your priority is. If we're going to keep classroom sizes low and keep redu- and try to reduce that number, you can't do that and add another 750 million dollars in tax dollars for compensation. And I just think it's like we can't let this be an abstraction the choice is to raise taxes on working people in the province of Ontario to pay for higher benefits and entitlements and, comp- and wages. And I choose to say no to that. I think that's unreasonable for folks who make in and around $92,000 if you're a OSS you have a high school teacher. So, would
2: you make further concessions on those two points if, if they would agree to stick to the 1%? You
9: know, we've already made significant moves, but I've indicated I, I've given my negotiating team the authority to drive a deal. I'm open to innovative ways to do that, including on classroom sizes. But it requires the unions to be willing to make some moves themselves. And, and I often bring this back to this point, Libby, with you and others, because you know, the, you're obvious you're you're the, the sort of uh, expectation in the question is that one authority should move. And I would argue that the the people of Ontario want everyone to make some modest moves towards a deal. I think there's a way forward here. I'm going to remain focused on a a negotiated settlement. It really is the best option. And my hope is that parents will take us up on the interim for our support for parents initiative, the financial support we've offered. But the long-term goal here, I'm not losing sight of as a priority is a deal that provides continuity and predictability and ends the needless cyclical delays and frustrations the unions have mounted against every government of every stripe for 30 years.
2: Sam Hammond of the elementary teachers said that you have a perfectly good mediator now. Why are you insisting on a private mediator? The current one says there's no point getting you back to the table. You're too far apart.
9: We've We've almost started negotiating just under a year. Um, you know, and we've invoked uh you know the Ministry of Labor mediator for many months, and we're grateful for her service. But at the end of the day, when there is an impasse, and the people of Ontario, the students of our of the province, the most vulnerable, are in the midst of this debate, not no fault of their own, as a casualty of teacher union led escalation. I argue that every tool should be used in the toolkit to to drive an outcome. And the fact that we have in the QP negotiation months ago came to a similar impasse into rhetoric and everything else that came with it, yet we didn't get a deal. And I benchmark our success by stability. And so we then chose private mediation. That union did not include preconditions. They did not suggest we have to accept all of their demands in order to consider private mediation. They just accepted it. And some days later, it led to a deal that, that ensured schools stayed open for every class in the province of Ontario. I cannot conceive why the teacher union would say to anyone that they oppose a relevance, contemporary and, and effective method to get a deal. And that's what I hope that they will accept. I've called them to do it for months, but I'm redoubling that request today. I just think it makes sense. And it's when you're at an impasse, which happens through this process, it's the nature of the ebb and flow of negotiations. Why not accept another ability to drive a deal? With private mediation, it actually forced each and every party, the three of us, to get to that outcome that I thought was important. So, I, I'm just trying to be a practical force saying, let's do it. Let's consider it. Let's use it. It, it seems to have worked just months ago. Education
1: Minister Stephen Lecce in conversation with Libby Snymer this past Thursday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Pat in Toronto phoned to talk about the need to be overly cautious when it comes to the possibility of being a victim of scams.
9: The public just has to be very, very, very careful because there are so many scams out there, so many bad emails coming to us every day. You know, you're almost forced to go back to working in cash or working in checks. I We're mean, going to the teller, the ability to lose money yeah. is just incredible.
1: Ron and Guelph called to give his take on the labor unrest with Ontario's teachers.
8: It looks like the tide is starting to turn where, at one time, the, uh, I guess the teachers and the unions thought that the public was always on their side. Well, eh, I guess that's not the, the way it's turning out now, where they, um, the public is concerned about bigger uh, class sizes, but they're certainly not believing that the teachers deserve the raise that they're asking mm-hmm. for.
0: And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the
1: winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Helen in Toronto, who phoned about the ongoing challenge with buying reasonably priced auto insurance in Ontario.
10: My insurance goes up every year, even though I haven't had an accident in 20 years now. I try to do what everybody recommends, go look at other insurers. When I did, they told me, you're going to start at zero, and you're going to have to work your way up to, I don't know if it's six points or ten points. Um, And then when you go back to the insurance company and say, hey, this is too high considering,
0: uh,
10: they'll say, well, how about reducing this? How about reducing that? You can't reduce those things. I mean, you've got to have the liability to cover just in case, catastrophic injuries, sure, if the car was uh, an old clunker, yeah, you don't want to pay a fortune to have it repaired, um, but when the car, <laughs> my last car I kept for 15 years and it was still running, so uh, I can't understand uh, why I have to start at point .0.
1: Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback@zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Nimer.